You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation Podcast, episode 77. Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today in the show, we are talking with Brendan Cummings, who is Senior Counsel at the Center for Biological Diversity. Brendan has been working at the Center for close to 20 years and has played a central role in the organization's development into an environmental law firm with strong national and international influence. His area of focus is marine conservation, and he has some great insights into the role that the legal system can play in protecting endangered species and marine ecosystems generally. Brendan also lays out the role that the Center for Biological Diversity has been playing in the conservation of the vaquita, and explains why this species presents such a unique case for his organization. Let's jump into the interview. Uh, Brendan Cummings, I'm Senior Counsel with the Center for Biological Diversity. Um, So how long have you actually been involved in law? About 20 years. Um, Yeah, I went to law school in 94, and so I've been practicing environmental law ever since. What got you first interested in environmental law? My first interest came as a child. Um, Probably my first clear memory of of the environment as a kid was not from actual experience, since I grew up in the inner city, and it was from books and television. But I remember as a little kid watching on television um, Greenpeace people in their Zodiacs interfering with the Russian whalers. And I was just so engaged in it, I decided I wanted to do that. And um, when I was 21, I went out with Sea Shepherd, um, chasing around drift netters in the Bering Sea. And um, through that, that was my first and one of my only true experiences on the deep ocean and at a certain point in that campaign, um, you know, we heard that the Driftnet fleet had left. We declared victory and moved on. And it wasn't until later that I realized that there was a lawsuit brought under the Marine Mammal Protection Act that suspended the permits that the Driftnetters were operating in. And so even though the direct action of Sea Shepherd brought so much attention to the issue, it was actually a court case um, that kicked the driftnetters out of U.S. waters, out of the U.S. EEZ in the Bering Sea. And that got me thinking about wanting to go to law school to be able to use the law um, to protect the planet, to protect the ocean. Law is, you know, the language of power in our society, and I wanted to learn that language. It seems that that episode that you just experienced and you just explained um, seemed very cut and dry and straightforward. Is it really like that? No. Law, when you work in the legal realm, the law does not necessarily perfectly reflect what my view of the world should be. But um, that said, if we as a society, and particularly federal agencies, uh, followed the laws that we have on the books, we'd have be living in a far cleaner, healthier planet with a lot more uh, wildlife in it than we currently do. So clearly recognize the limitations of of using the legal system as a means for social change you know it's one part of a much broader social movement that we need but um we've learned to utilize the levers of power that uh, the legal system grants us and try to 
use those in a thoughtful, strategic way to, you know, advance you know, my, my broader goals and ideally society's broader goals of protecting the planet and making it a livable planet, not just for people, but for all the species that still exist on it. So uh, were, you, were you working for a different firm? I mean, who were you working for before the Center for Biological Diversity? Um, I had always done activism in a volunteer form, either on campus in Berkeley where you know, my political coming of age occurred um, or for various you know, small groups that came together that were completely non-professional. Um, it wasn't until after law school as law school was wrapping up, I saw what the folks who had started the center were doing. And at that point, it was a regional um, organization called the Southwest Center for Biological Diversity. And I wanted to replicate what uh, they were doing on a in California and in the oceans. And um, through before my own organization uh, ever really got going, I got absorbed into the center, and very quickly uh, we dropped Southwest from the name. We became the Center for Biological Diversity, and I started up our ocean program. And so how long have you actually uh, been a part of the center? Uh, um, 1997 is when I finished law school and immediately went uh, to Tucson to... Um, to, to sort of immerse myself in the center and learn from them. And at that point, I thought I was going to be replicating what they were doing in the Southwest in the ocean context. And instead, I ended up becoming part of the organization. So um, were there other organizations that you were interested in or at the time? Or, and that, or did you just kind of fall into that and things went well, so you just stuck with it? There's innumerable environmental organizations in the United States and around the world. And most of them do really great work. My environmental coming of age was through um, things like Earth First and Sea Shepherd, and so had a perspective of the larger groups um, become organizations, become somewhat bureaucratic, and don't necessarily do what, don't address the issues with the urgency that they need. Um, and so, what I really liked about the center at the time was it was maintaining the attitude and spirit. Of, of the smaller grassroots groups, but utilizing the tools and the skill set that the larger, more professional groups were doing. And so over the course of the past two decades, being part of the center as we've grown from a grassroots group to a group of national and international influence, we've tried to maintain that spirit. What is conservation? What does it mean to you? At its core, I'd like to think we as a species can consciously or unconsciously make a decision to share the planet with all the other species that occur on it. And, you know, there's many different realms of, of conservation, whether it's very explicit and direct of protecting a patch of land um, that you know very well to the very abstract of protecting species that you may never see. And, but for the work of some scientists, you might not never even know they existed. But fundamentally, you know, conservation at its core is that sense of coexistence that you know we are but one of many millions of species on this planet and we have an outsized impact and and through our evolution an outsized brain and skill set and that provides both responsibility as well as a curse because we're having an incredibly destructive impact on the rest of the biosphere. So what has been your experience as far as how the public perceives conservation? Does it seem like it's something that everybody's embracing, um, or is it much like 
how you get this seesaw effect with when you say the word global warming and you've got some people that are just think that it's a bunch of crock and then you got other people that do understand. I, I think at their core, most people are pro-conservation. Most people, you know, from their earliest childhood experiences, whether they're direct or um, mediated by television, film, and now the internet, love animals. And that's that, I think, is one of the greatest motivators for people um, all around the planet. People don't like the idea of species going extinct. You know, as a biodiversity conservation organization, I'd like to think that would apply to all species on the planet. But um, what we've learned is, you know, while all animals are equal, some are more equal than others, and some are cetaceans. And so whales and dolphins have an outsized emotional impact with people and um, because they because of that um, we have statutes such as the Marine Mammal Protection Act you know which is a societal commitment to share the oceans with marine mammals and if we actually apply both the spirit and the letter of that law we can protect marine mammals and um, the oceans with it and those animals can act as an umbrella species protecting the entire ecosystem how did you first learn about the vaquita like since i've been paying attention to marine mammals for ever since i was a child i probably learned of its existence you know once at the point where i got my first comprehensive marine mammal field guide but truly becoming aware of it um i first started uh, learning the vaquita's plight actually from doing work related to the colorado river since um the Colorado River in the United States floor, flows out of the United States, or at least in theory does, used to, um, into Mexico, and the Colorado Del- River Delta um, is at the very top of the Gulf of California, and right where those two ecosystems meet is the home of the vaquita. So my original thoughts and interest on the species was really in the context of um, learning about the health of the Colorado River ecosystem and, and work my organization was doing in terms of trying to ensure um, sufficient water flows um, to the Colorado River Delta. But over time, as um, I got more directly involved in marine mammal issues, vaquita is the species that more scientists that I talked to more emphatically would raise conservation concerns about. So it was, um, while we were doing work on all sorts of species, everyone was like, I'm most concerned about the vaquita. At the same time, because it's in another country, it's a much harder species to work to protect from the, the vantage point of the United States. And so I stayed, became aware of it, and always looked for things we could do to benefit it. But... Only in, really, only in recent years have I become fully immersed in it. Over the, over the past decade, it was unclear how best to advocate for the vaquita. Um, I would say, as, as an organization that's often really good at wielding the stick, um, there were lots of folks working at handing out carrots. And I would say I would get mixed messages from people working on Vaquita issue, who had more on the ground, on the water, um, knowledge of the details than I did. You know, some were saying, it's getting more and more desperate, we need you to do something. 
do what you can to highlight it. And others would say things are likely to swing for the better in Mexico. It's a delicate situation. <laughs> Pressure from the U.S. might be counterproductive. Um, I would say it was only in the past year and a half, in late 2013 and beginning of 2014, I think as more and more scientists became aware of just how serious the plight of the vaquita is and how, how measures to protect the species clearly weren't working because the decline was continuing, that the messages I heard changed from somewhat contradictory of please do something or please hold off to do whatever you can. The carrot alone is not working. We need the stick. And that's when myself and my organization jumped in full time. So how long has the, the center actually been involved? Well, we've been involved to some degree with Vaquita for over a decade. It's really in the past 18 months that we've gotten much more involved. Um, one of the key things we've done is we've been working for, again, for close to a decade to seek enforcement, implementation and enforcement of a provision of the Marine Mammal Protection Act that, um, if truly applied, would prohibit countries from exporting their fish to the United States, would prohibit the United States from importing uh, fish from countries that were operating their fisheries in a manner that was killing marine mammals. Um, and that we've been trying to get this implemented for years. It's been a slow-moving government process. Um, finally, last year, uh, we filed suit to bring that to fruition. And while that lawsuit and that system covers all species of marine mammals in the world and all fisheries, since the U.S. Um, the U.S. appetite for seafood is, is global. As that case was taking shape and the plight of the vaquita was becoming more apparent, particularly with the release of the Serva report, we tightened the focus of that lawsuit to be about vaquita. Um, that vaquita is the prime example of whatever standards for management of marine mammals the United States has or any country has a standard that allows a species to go extinct is clearly unacceptable, and so we shouldn't be allowing um, the import of shrimp and other fish products from Mexico that are um, caught in a manner that's driving the species extinct. So I'd say that was our, our first and biggest involvement, and that's still ongoing. And then in parallel, we were looking for other legal angles um, to apply, apply pressure on Mexico. And so one of the things we did is invoked a provision of U.S. law called the Pelley Amendment, which, again, is designed to ensure that other countries play by the rules that we've all agreed to. There's a whole list of international treaties that various countries have signed, and U.S. law is structured that if a country is undermining the effectiveness of a treaty, um, the U.S. government should uh, apply some kind of trade sanctions to, to wildlife products generally, um, such as fish. So we, we filed a petition to invoke, um, evo invoke the Pelley Amendment to seek sanctions against Mexico for the fact that uh, the, the, the illegal tatuaba fishery um, was undermining um, the effectiveness of CITES, the Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species. Um, because one of the things going on, and it's, it's a, we have two endangered species in the Gulf of California. You have the critically endangered vaquita, and then you have the tatuaba. While the tatuaba's source of endangerment, you know, is a mix of the fisheries and um, 
the dewatering of the Colorado River Delta. The fisheries targeting Tatuaba are one of the primary threats to the vaquita. Um, and so the Tatuaba itself is endangered and is protected by both Mexican law, U.S. law, as well as international treaty obligations. And so we've tried to leverage that to better protect the vaquita. A year ago, our campaign and the vaquita campaign was focused on Mexico. You must do the right thing. And that's kick the gill nets out of vaquita habitat and enforce it for both the legal and illegal fisheries. Now, Mexico is saying the right thing and apparently doing the right thing. So the most important thing is to ensure that they continue to do that. And again, that's the role where the threat of an embargo or sanctions has to remain to demonstrate to the Mexican government that there's real consequences um, if they don't maintain the effort uh, to keep gillnets out of Vaquita's habitat. Your personal opinion, do you, do you believe that they can follow through? I mean, they've, they've proven themselves in the past, and, yeah. but they've also failed in the past. So, yeah. like, how does that... Saving the vaquita... I, I would say my sense of hope for the vaquita swings wildly on an almost daily basis. On the one hand, it has such a narrow range, and it really only has a singular threat, drowning in gillnets, that it should be savable. It's not like we're dealing like a continent-wide distributed species like the elephant in Africa. It's not like the polar bear where we as a society have to completely change our energy system and address global warming to save it. To save the vaquita, we just have to remove a certain type of fishing gear from a very tiny portion of the world's oceans. Um, so it should be easy. However, what we've seen over the past decade is even the easy and common sense doesn't always happen. Um, I'm hopeful because we know what needs to happen, and for the first time, really, the Mexican government has embraced what's necessary to save the vaquita. Um, we still need to monitor and be vigilant and make sure they're actually doing it. That, you know, it's one thing to say gillnets are banned, it's another thing to actually monitor the waters and see if there's still gillnets in there. And that's, I think, the most important thing we need to do over the next couple of years to see what's going on and ensure that the vaquita is protected not just by proclamation, but by actual reality on the water. How effective is a two-year ban? Is that going to give the vaquita enough time to recoup or to prove to people that it could recoup? That The fact that the current ban is only two years is problematic in that obviously the vaquita needs a decade or more, and really permanent protection from gillnets if it's to survive. That said, if the ban doesn't work during these two years, then it's never going to work. So if we can have vigilant enforcement and monitoring of, of the ban over this next two years, I'm more optimistic that we can get the ban extended long term um, than I am that the, ban will actually, the fishing ban will actually be enforced over the course of those two years. So, um, so clearly, we, you know, Mexico needs to make that ban permanent, and they should have done that from the start. But it's easier to extend an existing ban than it is to initiate one in the first instance. So I think that's less of a hurdle than the more important issue of will there be compliance by the fishermen and will there be a commitment to enforcement and monitoring by the Mexican government over these two years and beyond. What needs to happen, though, over these two years to actually 
extend that ban? I mean, does it does it require more of the international community to apply pressure and honestly to change their own habits? If the vaquita is going to be saved more than two years from now, Mexico needs to continue to feel both an international pressure as well as a domestic obligation to protect the vaquita, not as an annoying nuisance that's um, causing it bad press internationally, but as an important part of its natural heritage. And to get to that point, we need um, people, not just in Mexico, but in the United States and around the world, to embrace the vaquita, highlight its, its importance, and, and feel viscerally what it might mean to lose an important species, any species, um, from this planet. And, you know, the vaquita, if it goes extinct, if it's driven extinct, um, so often we use the passive voice of going extinct, um, but in this case it's affirmatively being driven extinct by people putting nets in the water and complicitly to some degree by people in the United States putting shrimp on their plate. Um, if the vaquita is to be saved, first the world has to know about it and um, has to loudly and affirmatively say it's unacceptable to drive a species extinct based on our behavior. Um, we don't need shrimp. We certainly don't need shrimp from that portion of the ocean. Why is it important to save an endangered species? There are all sorts of utilitarian arguments for protecting endangered species, the role of ecosystem services, the fact that medicines come from them, all sorts of things that are real and valid reasons that might be a rationale that people embrace for saving a species. But I think at its core, it boils down to an ethical question of, you know, we live on a finite planet that has an incredible diversity of species on it. And it just simply is wrong. <laughs> um, and sometimes ethical, ethical questions are hard to um, explain or articulate, but I, I certainly feel, and a great many people on this planet feel when exposed to it, that it's, there's something wrong about eliminating part of what's here. We share this planet with you know, several million other species, and we're all the products of the same evolutionary process. And it would be a much lonelier planet, a much more desolate place, if we were adopted or were tolerant of an attitude that said, well, what a, we could lose that species. That one doesn't provide any protein that we eat. We can lose that species. That, one, that plant doesn't provide shade or food. Um, we could lose that one because it's not large and furry and cute um, and that's that just to me is fundamentally at odds with you know what I'd like to think humans are <laughs> and um, you know we are a rare species that is self-aware and I would hope that that self-awareness would mean that uh, we recognize our, our role on the planet and it's it's as a custodian of this planet, not as a um, destroyer. Why should anybody specifically care about the vaquita when there's so many other animals? As a biodiversity conservation organization that you know, has as its mission saving everything, we regularly face the dilemma of what do we work on? Everything needs help. But 
certain species where the risk is so imminent and the solution is so obvious and so much within grasp are the ones that it's impossible not to work on. You know, standing here in San Diego, you know, the vaquita is less than 100 miles from here. It's so close. Um, you know, it would take as much time to get to the vaquita's habitat as it will for me to get home. Um, that closeness, I think, also has a certain impact on folks in the United States. That something just beyond, um, just out of our range of influence, maybe disappearing, creates a compulsion to do something about it. Of the innumerable imp imperiled species on this planet, the ones I choose to work on are the ones where I feel like I can have an impact. Um, I live in the United States, and so any species in the United States I feel like I can protect. I live in California. I can particularly influence the status of ones in California. Um, for marine mammals, I can influence ones where the U.S. is at least part of the problem and part of the solution. Um, you know, there's a really great relationship between Mexican marine mammal scientists and United States marine mammal scientists, part of which is because here in San Diego um, is one of the epicenters of marine mammal studies. Um, and so the vaquita has always been a species that even though it occurs only in Mexico, um, the drive of its threat, the, the market for shrimp comes from the U.S., the gillnets are in Mexico, the scientists span the borders. It's one that we're in some ways linked, and um, therefore, while any extinction is horrible, I think the extinction of the vaquita will be felt in a more painful and poignant way for so many people than so many other species. And truly, if we, if we do what's necessary to save the vaquita, we're really protecting... Uh, the ecosystem it's in. It's oftentimes there's focus on, you know, the, the charismatic species, the, the large predators, the, the whales and dolphins. And um, while all species matter, and we work to protect the less charismatic as well, there's, there's a benefit to focusing on the, the larger and the more charismatic. Both, um, one, it's easier to engage the public to care. Um, but two, if you protect them, usually what you're doing to protect them protects everything you know, below them in the food chain. I wish no species were threatened, and I wish there were unlimited resources to, to focus on every imperiled species on the planet. Um, but you can choose the ones to work on based on that mix of how urgent is it and what can I do. It's like a, a doctor in an emergency room doing triage, and the vaquita is at this moment in time is in that point where we know exactly what we need to do, we know how to do it, and if we don't do it, it'll be gone within five years. And therefore, that rises to the very top of the urgency list. So what happens if the vaquita goes extinct? If the vaquita is driven extinct, it'll be a demonstration of our failure as a society to do that which is easy, that which is agreed upon, that which is necessary, yet still somehow we let it happen. It, it, and I think it'll create a profound sense of sadness and loss, um, certainly in the marine mammal community, but broader among anyone who cares about 
the fate of wildlife on this planet. Part of maintaining motivated and keeping hope to, such that you, you can day in, day out, do the work necessary to try to save it is you don't contemplate that loss. You, know? you deal with it if and when it comes, but um, I refuse to think of a world without vaquitas, and therefore I can continue. And you know, five years from now, if we're having this uh, a follow-up interview, um, you can ask me how I think about the loss of a vaquita, but at this stage, I'm not ready to go there. Has there been another species that CBD or you have worked on and put so much into and had that negative ending? There have been species we've aware of who are in that category of probably extinct. Birds in Hawaii that have been reduced to two or three individuals and scientists each year go looking for them and at a certain point there's a declaration that it's probably extinct. Um, And we certainly pay attention to those things. But I would say the vaquita is the first species where it feels like over the course of what the duration of a lawsuit or the duration of a campaign, it very well could be driven extinct. And therefore, it compels an urgency of activity unlike any we've ever dealt with for a species. And then uh, that's pretty much all I have. Thank you. Yeah, now my pleasure. All right, that was our conversation with Brendan Cummings, Senior Counsel at the Center for Biological Diversity. I love that Brendan doesn't shy away from addressing the philosophical nature of endangered species conservation. As an advocate for natural ecosystems and endangered species, it's easy to forget about these simple questions. Why should I care about saving a species? It's important to take a step back on occasion and remind oneself why this work is so important from a big-picture perspective. You can learn more about Brendan's work and the work of the Center for Biological Diversity over on the show notes page for this episode, which you'll find at wildlensinc.org slash EOC77. This episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky, along with Wildlands producer Sean Bogle. Our theme music is by The Humidors. Humidors.